Can we see it? I'm going to try to alternate as much as possible between preaching to you and teaching to you because, you know, Wednesdays, I don't get multiple services with y'all. So last week, I, the last time we had class, more of a, a preachy, fix your life, here's what's wrong with you, God is holy kind of deal. Uh, today, I want to be, I want to teach you something. I'm kind of getting, I was talking to somebody about this for class, kind of get cranky in my old age as I approach 30. Um, about people not wanting to have opinions about the bedrock of Scripture. And the, if you want to make me mad, which none of y'all would do this, the statement that makes me mad the most is it doesn't matter. Okay? Well, if it's in the Bible, it matters, right? Paul said that all Scripture is profitable for doctrine. Doctrine, like the stuff that gets you to heaven, and for correction and righteousness, instruction, all these, all Scripture. Jesus said that one jot nor tittle, that's Hebrew for not one word or punctuation point will pass away. It's all important. But I know we've all heard it, we've all thought it at some point, that as long as you know about the new birth, how to be baptized, and the Holy Ghost, you know, if you have a little bit of Matthew, a little bit of Corinthians, or talks about uncut hair, if you, if you have a little bit of Revelations, you know, you don't need Haggai, you don't need John, you know, we're kind of minimalist with Scripture. My opinion is if God, the infinite, unlimited God, could limit himself to 66 books, he was being pretty constrained. That means the weight of every word is extremely heavy. That a God that could do everything, limit himself to that many, it's actually the Bible is pretty small. So everything has a weight to it. John said when he wrote his gospel, he said that if I wrote everything I've seen, that's three years he's been with Jesus. If I wrote everything I've seen, there's not enough paper on the planet that has been or ever will be to contain all that I've seen. So that means that everything has a weight. So let's get in the first three chapters of Genesis. Believing in creation is very, very important. What you believe in. It's not just a storybook thing. It sets up everything. It shapes how you view salvation. The whole Bible, your position on the first three chapters of how God made everything, how God made Adam and Eve, shapes everything. Now, I'm not going to get into all of it like we have in the past. I'm not going to talk against evolution in this. I'm not going to explain how different races of people were formed or different languages or all those things. I'm not even going to explain how time and all the ways that we know time is literal in the Bible. You can refer back to a sermon on the podcast called God Created. We get into all that. It was only like three months ago. We got into a lot of different things. Today, I want to specifically look at the Garden of Eden. Okay? But to do that, we have to get into how it was made. Day one, day two, day three, day four, day five. On day six, God made Adam. He made man first, and he made the Garden of Eden. You have to believe that God did it in a literal day. Day one, day two, day three. Why? Because he's setting up reason and rhyme in this new world. He says, I saw the sun go down, and I saw this go down, and the sun rise. That's day one. That's day two. If God is being ambiguous or poetic or not being realistic in what he's describing, then we have no clock, we have no reason to rhyme, the genealogies of scripture all fall apart. The Bible has a clock because God's world never existed without time. We have this idea that the more spiritual something is, the less measurable it is. That in spirit, spiritualness, that means there's, it wasn't tracked, it wasn't measured, that Adam and Eve were in the garden for who knows how long, that time doesn't matter, that it doesn't have to be literal, but it has to be. Because your God is not ambiguous. Your God did not want to confuse you. He wanted you to understand very, very easily how he made everything. And without getting into it, there's a lot of different reasons why people would believe that God didn't do it in literal seven days. 
no biblical reason, but a lot of personal reasons. And it all comes out of this. The less literal we take God, it usually comes down to we just want a smaller and smaller God in our faith. I know they don't say it as blatantly, but if I can't take him creating the world in seven days just by speaking it, then how do I believe in Jesus' name baptism or that Jesus was a real walking, talking person? Like all of it, none of it, it all falls apart. You can't pick and choose what hill you're going to die on. You have to down every hill of scripture. Everything's important. Okay? So he makes everything, and he makes everything in maturity. That's very important. Okay? He said... Seeds come forth and produce after your own kind. Rhythm and rhyme. He said creatures come forth out of the dust of the earth and produce after your own kind. Okay? Then at the end of each day, he said it is good. He saw the fulfillment. Meaning, he made seeds and commanded them to grow into maturity. And he saw the maturity. He saw trees. It's accelerated. He saw animals. He produced animals. He said, now... Produce more animals. And he saw it come into maturity. The world is made in maturity. Each day, God says a thing. Well, if you deconstruct it, you can see why scientists are like, well, it's taken all this time to have a mature earth, and it took all these years. No, you're just deconstructing a world that God made in its entirety. For instance, Adam was not a baby. God made Adam a grown man. Did Adam have a belly button? I don't know. That's a different <laughs> rabbit hole. Did he eat one? I don't know. God made Adam a maturity. He very quickly gave Adam a wife. So day six, God makes man, and then he makes the Garden of Eden and puts man in it. So given that, I'm assume that even though we can't go through all of it again about why time was literal, that you agree with me for the sake of the next 30 minutes that time was literal. There's nothing to say that they were in the garden that long if you look at the sequence of Scripture. Day six, he makes Adam. And then he very quickly tells Adam his name. You're going to be named Adam. And then he tells Adam to name everything. Then he tells Adam to tend this garden. So I'm not trying to tell you something new today. I'm trying to get you to focus deeper on what you already know. For instance, our ideas of Adam and Eve are this. Very good looking, perfectly healthy idiots. They knew nothing. They were like really attractive like <laughs> babies. In the peak of physical performance, but they didn't know what was going on. That's actually, doesn't make any sense, Scripture. That is a, because of TV and movies, and we see cherubim and diapers. It's messed up our ideas of Adam and Eve. If God made Adam and Eve perfect, this is God's idea of perfection, not ours. Perfect. God's plan was for them to never sin. And he said, if I make nothing else, you two are the best I could ever do. That means they were special. They never would have died. They're made in maturity. Notice that that means when you look after sin, they begin to decay. Now the older you get, the less healthy you get. Now the older you get, the closer you get to death. But look how long they lived when they first left the garden. Men were living 600 years, 500 years. But longer and longer it went. And because of specific sins, God began to shorten the lifespan. And the year of a man's life named Peleg, God said you're only going to live 120 years. And sin and decay, it just began to break it down in their lives. But even that far out of the garden, they're still living a crazy amount because they're not that far from being perfect physically. But sin eroded it. Now you have to understand, if God says I made you and you're the best I ever made, he doesn't just mean they were physically perfect. Because God's idea of perfection isn't just a physical one. They were spiritually perfect. Why don't we believe they were mentally perfect then? Why do we believe they were perfect and 
appearance and physicality health-wise, but they were dumb and ignorant. Why do we believe those things? And why do we believe that they didn't know these things? So there's a secular idea that man had to develop language. That man was in caves with trying out grunts and sounds and developed a way to communicate. That man didn't know anything and he had to, he had to evolve into knowledge. Well, if you believe times little in the Bible, here's what happened day six. Adam, wake up. You're God, I'm Adam. God didn't make Adam learn a language. God already had language downloaded into Adam. He made him maturity. It's very hard for our little minds to comprehend because you and I have to learn things. Like to get in peak physical condition, you have to eat right and exercise right for a long time to gain it. Adam was made perfect physically. We all agree about that. He may not have looked buffed, but he wasn't going to die from anything. He's going to live forever. His health was amazing, and it never was going to depreciate. Why do we believe then that maybe his mind was not the same as that, if that's God's idea of perfection? He doesn't make Adam learn language. He's talking to the God of heaven and earth as soon as he wakes up in a language. It's pre-downloaded into him. By merit of his nature, Adam has knowledge from God. Okay? Adam knows what a name is because he said, your name's Adam. He doesn't have to explain it. He doesn't have to help him sound it out. He knows what names are. God's established it. He's established his language. All these things are already going on. Now, we don't take time to think about this, but it's very, very important. Some people say they were in the garden for millions of years because they want to shake hands with evolution. But we don't see that at all in Scripture. Then, the same day, Adam, you're naming everything. You're going to tend my garden. Now, I don't know what your idea of the Garden of Eden is, okay? God made the Garden of Eden as like the best he did. He made everything, but he said, I'm doing something really, really special with Eden. He didn't make it to after he made Adam. Like, God was like, watch this, poof. What do you think God's idea of a garden looks like if it's the best garden God could ever make? It had to be extraordinary. It had to be wonderful. It had to be, you can't even fathom what kind of garden God made. Okay, it, is, it, it, it had to be a, a, amazing. If this is God's opinion of a perfect world for his perfect people, it meant that there were some crazy things going on. Okay, Then he asked Adam, the dude's only one day old, you're in charge of all this. I know you can keep it alive. He didn't teach him how to garden. He didn't teach him how to work. We think that Adam only worked after they sinned. No, he said, now work's going to hurt. He taught him how to work in perfection. But he didn't explain it to him. Well, you don't know how long they were there. This is all happening with day six, y'all. He's telling him. So we believe the Bible's literal. We have to assume and accept certain things. That Adam, by, by, by virtue of just being perfect, he already had knowledge upon him. For instance, the Bible says the earth was a sphere hanging. People didn't know that for thousands of years after the Bible recorded it. They thought it was flat. Scientists thought it was flat. And if you said it was a sphere, they almost they tried to kill you. The Bible already knew that. For many years, the Bible talked about the Hittites. Nobody believed in the Hittites. And then like 1901, they discovered the Hittites. The Bible was thousands of years before its time. God always revealed deep things before science caught up to it. After the fall of man and after the flood, we're only a few generations from Adam. And people are living for thousands of years, or for hundreds of years still. So we look at their bodies, and their bodies are different than ours, but they're slowly decreasing. We can even believe that their minds, the capacity to think, must have been greater than ours. For instance, God made 
Their language is confused at the Tower of Babel because he said, I'm seeing them build a thing, and if I let them keep building it, nothing will be impossible to them. Now listen, I know you've heard that. I know you've seen that. and You know, know, you know about the Tower of Babel. Why don't you think about this for me, okay? How amazing of a structure do you have to build for God to go, that's pretty legit. That's so legit that I can't let you do it. Because, like, well, maybe he didn't really mean nothing would be impossible. Maybe he's just, no, God, in his, in, he had to be very selective in what words he spoke to you by writing on the page, right? Every word has its weight. He said what they're building, how advanced they're becoming, nothing will be impossible to them if I don't slow them down. Why do you think they're able to do that? Because they're not that far from the garden. The same way their health is doing things our health couldn't do, I believe their mind had the capacity to do things our mind couldn't do. Adam already had language. Adam already had reason rationale. Adam already knew what a name was. He already knew mysteries of things that we're going to still try to figure out. For instance, it says that when you go to heaven, Paul said things that we knew in part will be fully revealed to us. That mysteries, that a veil will be removed and all things will be revealed to us. When you get to heaven, mind blown. You have a capacity to process and receive and understand mysteries of life. That's heaven that we're going to. But God's first heaven was Eden. They're so close that God puts the same tree in both of them. Tree of life's in Eden. And the Bible says you and I will eat of the tree of life if we make it at heaven too. So the first version, the second version, if the second version God says all things are revealed, why do we not believe that in the first version Adam and Eve didn't have the mysteries? I mean, you're walking with God. And your idea, God, your God's idea of a perfect person. So they go to build the Tower of Babel. You know why? The Israelites had a problem. If you read Kings and Chronicles, they built these things called high places. You may have seen them. You're like, what's the deal with high places? God was not happy with high places. One, they built them under foreign gods. But why a high place? In Ezekiel, the Bible describes what Eden looked like. It was a beautiful garden, and there's a mountain in the middle of it that reached into the heavens. And the Bible describes angelic beings being able to walk up and down that mountain. It's an intersection between God's domain and his new earthly domain. Where the, 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 the gap between the spiritual and the physical were not like they are now. They were blended. The Bible describes... Lucifer walking up and down this mountain before he sinned, the chief cherub, working in the garden. That's why God put him there. He was working there before he sinned. That's, but that's another lesson. So there's this high place that represents spiritual ascension. That they're seeing angels go up and down it. And God's coming down, walking in the cool day. I don't know how physical this, I don't know how God with my hands and feet walked, but the Bible said he walked with Adam and Eve. So whenever they leave the garden and they begin to have kids. They're telling stories of how this high mountain reached into heaven. And at the top, there was God. Well, the Jews kept doing that when they turned to idolatry. If we built something high, it means we're more spiritual. You understand that it's, that's a faulty reasoning, right? The higher you get doesn't mean we're spiritual anymore. But you can get why they believe that. If your great-great-great-grandparents said, used to be the higher you went on this mountain, the closer you were in the, this heavenly domain in Eden. The first thing they do when they're all together, they begin to build the highest building they can build. Because they think the higher the building, the more spiritual we are. Obviously, it's not going to work, right? But God knew their hearts. And he didn't like what they were doing. They were trying to not need him. They were trying to disobey his plan. He saw their arrogance. 
But even in their delusion, that's why they were doing it, because it's carried from the garden. Even in their delusion, God said, i got to stop them. Because they're, they're advancing too quickly. Did you know that we don't even know how the Egyptians built the pyramids? We don't even know. Every time we think that they didn't have language yet, we find people had language. Every time we think people didn't have medicine, we find they had language, or that medicine. Every time we think that Rome was the only ones running water and sewage, we find someone else did. We've been taught that we started out with nothing and had to gain something. But that's not biblical, y'all. We started out with everything and we lost everything. Now to say, well, Adam and Eve didn't know about penicillin. They didn't know about algebra 2. Adam and Eve didn't know about how to use a microwave. Yeah, knowledge, having the capacity, is not the same as having the knowledge to work a PS4. Okay, I've heard people say this. Well, like, if Leonardo da Vinci showed up, poof, he would, like, torch us with his intellect. And once you get past the language barrier, the dude's brilliant. He'd make our little brain just ache because he, his philosophy, his, his awareness, his emotional intelligence would be amazing. And then you would hand him an iPhone and he'd look like an idiot. Just because he doesn't understand our technology doesn't mean we have more knowledge in him. Every current generation has the arrogance of saying, well, our great-grandparents, they were ignorant because they didn't know how to do this or that. But they fought wars we wouldn't have fought and they believed in ideals we don't believe in anymore. Obviously, they were greater than us even though we have more technological advancements. So what I'm trying to tell you is don't judge Adam and Eve's capacity by what we know now, what we can do now. Judge, knowledge is like, I'm talking more about horsepower, awareness, capacity, the ability to reason and rhyme. They had an emotional intelligence and a rationality way beyond anything we can fathom. We've lost it without time. We're going to regain it in heaven. Why are these things important? Because evolution has affected how we view early men. And the Bible makes a whole lot more sense when you realize that God isn't starting man out with zero. He's starting man out at 120. And you and I are living at 45% now. You're thinking, he couldn't do it seven days. And, and man couldn't invent all these things fast enough. And the story of the Bible is too quick. Yeah, if, if man started at zero, he didn't know what fire was. But if you believe the Bible literally, all of it begins to make sense. You get what I'm saying? But we're reviving the garden. I'm putting a pin in that. I want to ask you then, how long, this is rhetorical to answer because I don't care what you think. No, I'm joking. How long were they in the garden? Okay. This question's a loaded question because people want to say the longer they were, the more they could fit in theistic evolution. Okay. And the more they would attack literal seven days. Genealogies are very, 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 very important. Okay. Because it shows us where Jesus the lineage, the Bible, like, that's why it's there. It's so important. Not one jot, not one tittle. Everything has weight. If the Bible's clock is wrong, the Bible's genealogies are wrong, and the ancestry of Jesus is wrong. But the same people that say we must have the ancestry of Jesus to show it's him are the same people that don't want to believe in a literal creation story. But you got to have both. Okay? So if the clock is wrong, the genealogies are wrong, and the sequence of events are wrong, and we can't trust any of it anymore. Why would God stop the clock? Day one, day two, through day seven, he said, I create everything in day one. Let's say you believe in a literal clock, literal creation, seven days. But most people do believe in that, but then they believe that for some reason, they don't know why, that God just stopped tracking time in the garden. They're walking around, their butterflies are flying, they're smelling roses, it's amazing. And God just, they could have been there for thousands of years in perfection. But why would God stop the clock? Because... 
you have this assumption that time is bad because time measures decay. And time is not of God. And, and, and if you're not dying and decaying, then there's no reason for time. Time is not bad. Time was what God did to measure his reality. The Bible doesn't say God stopped the clock. It said he started the clock. So we're not going to speak for the Bible. If he didn't stop it and say it, then we're going to assume it kept going. There's this principle in the Bible called first mention. That when the Bible says a thing is true, it never stops being true until it never ends until he says otherwise. And God never said the clock stopped. So here's what we know. That every day that Adam was alive, though he was not decaying, God was measuring his age. Because age was not a, a sign of how close you are to death at that point until sin. We know after Adam and Eve sinned, and they're kicked out of the garden, they have two sons, Cain and Abel. They have an issue, and Cain beats Abel's head in, and they have to start over. And they have another son, Seth, their third son. It, the Bible says what age Adam is when he gives, when he, him and his wife have Seth. 130 years. Okay? So if, if Adam has Seth at 130 years, and God never stopped the clock, and God is measuring his age, if Adam is five days younger than the rest of reality, because he's been on day six, we know the earth is 135 days old. Or, or, you know, usually I'm saying, not because he's 135 years. Anyways, he's... He's 130 years. So that means they couldn't have been in the garden any longer than 130 years, right? So they can't be in the garden any longer than 130 years because it says at this point, Adam is 130 years old. But then you have to take out Cain and Abel's life. He had a kid, Adam did, his third kid at 120 years. So these people are doing things later in life than you are. So let's just assume that Cain and Abel, when they had an issue and Cain left with his wife and all these things that they were somewhere from 30 to 50 years. Maybe even 90 years. I don't know. Somewhere in that range. You have to subtract them growing up because they had Seth after all that happened. So let's say they're, they're 50 years old. Okay. So to track that, that means that Adam and Eve could only be in the garden no more than like 80 years. 70 years. Okay. But they could have, Cain and Abel could have been even Older than that. The sequence of scriptures shows it looks as if they leave the garden and they have Cain and Abel. And then you get thinking of this. I know I'm teaching tonight. Bear with me. It says when Cain kills Abel and he goes to leave, that he knows his wife and his wife conceives a child. Where did Cain's wife come from? Okay. Cain's wife came from, it was his sister. Daughters were not recorded in scripture always. So you could have daughters... At any point in genealogy, but the Bible had to only use men because if you used everybody, you, the genealogy is too big. And the headship of like, if a man's home is bad, it's his fault. Everybody underneath him, he's responsible for everybody. That's why the Bible uses men for genealogies. They could have had daughters after the fall or whatever, so that could splurge time anymore. So they had to give Cain's wife time to be born and grow up. So I'm saying there's a lot of life happening here. Do I believe that I'm even in the garden for 80 years? No. But they could have been. Okay, and I'll tell you why I don't believe they were in a little bit. But even if we say that they were in the garden for that long, taking out all the time and using Seth's age, one, you have to believe a literal time, and two, you can't fit in evolution. You can't fit in all these things. 
And I don't know why our movement has been weird about making definite opinions about these things. Like, I don't know why. Like, sometimes no opinion is as bad as a wrong opinion when it comes to truth. Like, nothing is, is as bad as having the wrong thing. Like, going hungry, if you're starving to death, it's just as bad as having poison in your belly. I don't know why we're afraid to take definite stands. He gave us these things to meditate upon and to construct truth, to rightly divide the word. And so I may be off by 45 years about how long they were in, but we're pretty close because we're dividing what he's told us. We're not speaking for scripture. We're just making assumptions that are safe in the context of what God has given us to play in. We're not going out of bounds of the sandbox, but we're building within the constraints of Seth was this old and Adam had him at this age and all these different things. But here's why I think they weren't in the garden for that long. Adam did not name Eve until after they sinned. Okay? Adam wakes up. Your name's Adam. Names are important. Very, very important. This is not just passive. They didn't need names because no one was there to call them their names. God was there and names were important, even though no one was around. Adam, there's nobody around to call the animals what you call them, but I want you to name the animals because God is a God of reason and rhyme. God, I'm the, I'm the only person that can call you Adam, God is saying, but your name's valuable, okay? It's very, very important. For instance, like John the Baptist, these are how important names are. John the Baptist was prophesied by an angel saying, you're going to name your child John, your miracle baby. He's going to be the prophet that, that foreruns Jesus. It was tradition, though, that you were named after a relative or most likely your father. His daddy, Zacharias, didn't believe in miracle baby John coming, so he got muted. He couldn't speak. They show up on day eight of John's life. He's going to be circumcised, as was tradition. And all of his relatives show up, and they say, look at little Zachariah. His mom has said, uh-uh, his name's going to be John. And they were really confused. And you know how relatives are. I'm sure it was like that fussy aunt. You have no relatives named John. That doesn't make any sense. And they forced the issue and said, well, you know, maybe his daddy will agree with us. And his daddy couldn't speak. So they gave him a writing tablet. These were things they had. They weren't iPads. They gave him a writing tablet. Not an etchy sketch or a leapfrog, a writing tablet. He wrote on it, his name is John. As soon as he wrote on the right name, he could speak again. Because God cares about names. Abraham was Abram, and God said, we're going to upgrade you to Abraham, the father of many. You went from good father to father of many. Sarai, your name means princess. That's a little demeaning. I'm going to call you now Sarah, noblewoman. God, to God, names are important. Okay? So it's very, 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 very important when Adam names Eve. They sin, and God shows up and begins to scold them. You know what Adam says? The woman you gave me, God, she's the reason why this all got messed up. And they get roasted, right? Get roasted. Pain and childbearing. Pain and working. All these different things. This is a, a young marriage. So this, well, the next actions are very important on Adam's part. Adam looks at her. As soon as God stops scolding them, he goes off to make them clothes, fur clothes that cover their bodies, perfect in his ideas of holiness, before he kicks them out. And in the reprieve, after the scolding, Adam looks at Eve and says, I'm going to name you Eve. And the Bible literally says, and Adam named his wife Eve because she is the mother of all living things. He's blaming her five minutes ago for showing everything. But he breathes and he names her something that she's not yet. She's not a mama yet, but he names her that. The same way God named Abraham the father of many before he had a single baby. And Sarah, the same way he named Israel the father of a nation before he ever had a nation. Names are important. It was very important that in this heated moment, 
Adam named her something. It was spiritual. It was amazing. That If it's that important, do you think Adam took a thousand years or 40 years? He just forgot about naming his wife. You think he was that big of a jerk that sexism and bigotry, just that's why it happened? If the first thing he's Adam, wake up. You're Adam. Name everything else. I made you a woman from the womb of man. She's going to be your completion. You're going to become one flesh. She's amazing. You think he just like forgot about it because it didn't matter? I think they weren't there that long. I think we have a story of a new marriage that hadn't had a lot of time to get its feet underneath itself. Adam says, don't touch the fruit, that tree. God said, don't eat the tree. Adam's learning how to set boundaries. Eve's learning how to be submissive. Well, I already got it off the tree. Can we eat it now? And Adam says, well, you're really pretty. I don't want to start a fight. I guess it's going to be okay. You see a timid new husband and a misguided young wife. You see it happening so fast. The Bible gives us no indication that 50 years in their marriage, they became cranky and had issues. If you read and you sense the tone, the Bible says the Holy Ghost helps you understand Scripture. And I believe any spiritual person can feel these things. You can sense the tone of Scripture. It's happening quickly. And I believe they weren't there that long. I think the longer they're there, the more malicious their sin becomes. And the more we take away the pain and the trap that Adam fell into because of humanity and because they were deceived by Satan. I think we rob them. We make it easier and easier to avoid the mistake they had that we had through them if we said they were there longer and longer and longer. And it makes no sense. I mean, honestly, I don't want to answer this rhetorical. It makes no sense why he would not name his wife unless it was like, my goodness, it started out as a good day. I woke up, and there was a pretty woman here, and God says she's my wife. And all of a sudden, she's got the forbidden fruit, and I don't even know how to do this thing yet. I don't know how to be a good husband yet, but I'm like trying to complacent. it. And then, boom, the first time they have a marriage issue, the woman you gave me. Sounds like a, <laughs> sounds like a new married couple in counseling, doesn't it? So all these things into play. Hey, everybody. Wednesday, I forgot to go over my last and final point because we got a little sidetracked, and time went a little bit longer than I thought. So it just slipped my mind. So I'm really bummed out about it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to explain it. I'm going to stick it on the end of Wednesday's recording. And if you listened, you were there Wednesday, you you know, you can skip to this last part, obviously. And if you were not there Wednesday, I implore you to listen to the whole thing. I have talked a lot about how words in the Bible are important. I know that sounds self-explanatory, but for instance... The English word for hear means to simply perceive. If you hear me, that means you simply perceive me. You don't have to obey what I told you. You don't have to respond to what I told you. The word hear or even see in the Bible, these words mean simply just to perceive in English rather. Well, in Scripture, like in the Old Testament, the word hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. God said it over and over and over again, hear me. David said in Psalms, hear me. When you look up the definition for that word here, in Hebrew, it is Shema. Shema means to perceive and to obey, to be aware of and to respond to. So in English, if I say hear me, you just have to listen to me. But biblically, to hear someone, you have to respond to what they said. So when God said hear me, in, in by virtue of the word's definition, Obedience is implied. 
So when he said, hear me, he's not just saying, give me attention. He's saying, give me obedience after you've perceived the truth I'm speaking. That's very, very powerful. It reshapes how you view faith in the Bible. Because the word faith in English, we admit the definition, modern times, to simply believe. But biblically, faith is to believe and obey. See, same steps. To hear God in the Old Testament, I have to, I have to perceive and respond to. To have faith in God in the New Testament, I have to believe and obey. James said, faith without works is dead. He's saying the demons believe in one God. Good for you if you do. But he said, I show you my faith or I show you my belief by my obedience. It takes both. Well, in the New Testament, Jesus begins to flesh out this same thread of Scripture um, more blatantly. In John chapter 15, the Gospel of John, Jesus says, If you abide in me and I abide in you, whatever you ask in my name, I'll give to you. If my word abides in you, whatever you ask, I'll give to you. He said, You can bear nothing apart from me, so abide in me. I'm the vine, you're the branches. That word abide means this, connected to and changed by. It is a just an upgraded version of the word here in the Old Testament. That word abide is the same word. As the same way he told the Hebrews to hear me, he's telling his disciples to abide with him. You have to know my truth in learning. You have to perceive it in fact, but you have to obey it. You have to experience it. He said, you can't say that you, you know who I am or you believe me unless you've obeyed and responded. So abide in me, be connected to me and be changed by me. The Apostle John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, he picks up that same idea. It's very important. John chapter 15, he records Jesus saying it. And in one of John's letters, he follows it up. And he talks about how we must abide in God. He's saying you can't say that you walk in the light, but yet you walk in darkness. He can't say you're, you can't say I'm of God who is light, but yet my actions are dark. He's Great. He's making the definition of abide even more deep. He's saying to fully be with God. You can't just see God as light. You have to walk in his commandments. You have to walk in his truth. You must abide. Okay. I'm going somewhere with this. Just trust me. The word knowledge has the same definition as Shema here in the Old Testament as abide in the new. Paul said in the last days will be those among us that will be ever learning, but never coming to the knowledge of truth. This is probably not a new idea for most young people. How can you learn something but not know something? In English, learning and knowing are pretty interchangeable. We, we use them pretty back and forth. But biblically, Paul is saying that knowing a thing is not meaning you can cite the facts or you know of a thing. To have the knowledge in Scripture means that you have to experience. They're ever learning the facts of God, but they're never obeying and receiving the power of God. So this is testified by the fact in Second Peter chapter 1. Peter said, because you've been saved, you have been given these qualities. He lists these qualities. Faith and excellence and godliness and steadfastness and self-control and brotherly love. He said, if you have these qualities, kind of like fruits of the Spirit, if you have them and you stay in them and you grow in them, he said, this is how you make your calling and your election sure. He's talking about sanctification. You were saved and this is how you stay saved. You, you became redeemed. This is how you protect what you started. You grow in the nature of God, he said. If you have these, you become divine partakers of his nature. At the end of this, he says, if you have these qualities and you've obeyed them and you've grown in them, only then now 
can you say you have the knowledge of truth? Peter is saying that you can't just know in fact what godliness is, and you can't just know on paper what love is, and you can't just cite the definition of what faith is. He says when you have them and you're being changed by them, then you have the knowledge of them. So quick recap. To know something in Scripture means you perceive it in fact, but you obey it. You experience it. You don't know it till you apply it. Shema, hear, abide. Here's why this is important. God told Adam and Eve to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's been said um, that Adam and Eve did not know light. They didn't, they didn't have the ability in their brains to know what bad was. That's not the case at all. God told Adam, eat of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For Adam to know what right was, he instantaneously was told by God what wrong was. In Adam's brain, he knew what bad was. Don't do that. Just like an innocent child, you tell them, here's what a good thing is, here's what a bad thing is, choose the good thing. They instantly know what right and wrong is. Adam and Eve knew what right and wrong was. To pick right for however long in the garden, every time they didn't eat of the tree of knowledge and evil, they were picking right, and they had to say no to bad. They knew. They were not ignorant that God had not pacified the garden and put little safety plugs in the wall outlets. They were not babies. They knew what wrong was. They had just never experienced what happens when you do wrong. So when they eat of the tree of the knowledge and evil, uh, all of a sudden, people begin to think that that's the first time Adam and Eve knew what bad things were. This is what happened when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of evil. The word knowledge in the Bible means to see and to obey. This is the first time that a perfect human being who had only ever seen truth and seen wrong, but had only ever obeyed truth. This is the first time that they had seen bad and they had obeyed bad. They had experienced bad. They had seen it and they had obeyed it. They had now taken it upon it. They know they had the knowledge of sin. It awakens a sin nature and now they're, they're conflicted. Now there's chaos and there's a part that wants to do right, but it's being overshadowed by the part that's now awakened and wants to do wrong. They had now gained the knowledge of good and evil. They knew what good was in fact. They knew what bad was in fact. They had only ever done good. Now they know what it is to experience what happens when you obey God and when you obey your flesh. They now have gained a sin nature. So that eating that fruit did not magically download into their brains the ability to know right from wrong. They were not ignorant. They knew right from wrong. They had just never experienced what happens when you do wrong. They had now gained the knowledge of sin. So I hope you can understand that in this quick little excerpt. But... The more you, then the, Eden becomes less kooky and weird. They're not ignorant, perfect people running around, not knowing right from wrong. They had just now their bodies, their spirits, and their souls. This is the first time they've experienced not in fact what it is to do bad. They've experienced it in the knowledge. The same way you can know God in fact, but you don't know him until you've obeyed him. The same way they knew that's a bad thing, don't do that. Now they know what it is to do it, to experience it. And it's eroding their flesh. I think we think that in that moment, that's when they really gained the ideas of right and wrong. Because then immediately says, if they ate of the tree, their eyes were opened. But notice what their eyes were open to. Their eyes were open to shame. 
that was assigned to being naked. Their eyes, they did not gain the perception of what it was to do wrong. They gained the perception of shame and condemnation. You see, their nakedness, they had no shame assigned to it until they let sin in their lives. They weren't walking around doing something bad, and then when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of evil, all of a sudden, they realized, oh, we've been wrong this whole time. We've been naked the whole time. That wasn't it at all. When they experienced sin, sin took something that once was pure and assigned detriment to it. The same way sexuality in a perfect world had nothing wrong with it. Now sin is going to pollute it. It did the same thing with their nakedness, the same thing with their with their involvement with each other. It just took things that were pure. So to say that when they ate of the tree, that's the first time they perceived that nakedness was bad. No, that's the first time nakedness became bad. They knew what right and wrong was. Nakedness wasn't wrong. But when they ate of the tree, they experienced the knowledge of what happens when you experience sin. Sin takes things that once was good and makes it bad. It took things in their marriage that once was good and it used it for their bad things in their humanity thing everything it polluted and so that's what they happened they experienced the knowledge of what it is to have done good and bad and now they have the urges to do good and bad they're experiencing now what it means to be a fallen human